Well, thank you, worship team, for taking us to the Holy God this morning. And um, Faith Church, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, I want to echo Pastor Johnny's thoughts and just thanking you for being a church that serves and serves so well. Um, it's, it's such a joy to be part of a church body that loves our Lord and our Holy God and out of the overflow of that love serves so diligently. Last night as I was meeting each of the cars that were coming through, I would say over half of them would say, I've never been to the living nativity before. So it's kind of amazing after doing this for so many years that there'd be somebody in this community who hasn't seen it, but half of the people there we had the privilege of sharing the gospel with, and uh, that was such a great thing. I also echo the, the Johnny's point that you guys may need a nap more than you need a sermon right now, so feel free to just doze off for the next 40 minutes. Try to keep the snoring and the CPAP noise down a little bit, and um, I'll preach to myself because I need a sermon this morning, but um, anyway, so let's get to the task of God's Word this morning. Well, I grew up with a very stable family life, and I, I know the moment I say that, many of you may not be able to relate because your background was anything but stable. I've often spoken of my dad um, as a pharmacist owning his own drugstore and he did that for his career. That was stable. My mother worked at his book, as his bookkeeper. She was always working for him during the morning. And when I was come home from school, um, she would be there waiting for me. For her, it was a part-time job, so she would be there waiting. So stable. My parents took me regularly to church where I heard the gospel. That was a stable life. I only knew of one childhood house all of my entire life. And there it is. That pic picture was taken from Zillow, um, and there is my childhood middle-class, three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,300-square-foot house. That was the home that I knew all of my life. You know, after I moved away from Oklahoma to Indiana, home for the holiday meant traveling back to that house. Home for the holidays meant this, in that house, which my father purchased for his family, my father would be waiting there when my car came down the driveway and I would enter into that house. There in that house, my mother would have cooked either the Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. In that house, I always knew where to look for the Christmas tree, right in the bay windows there of that house. No matter where my travels took me, it seemed that that house with my father and mother in it was my anchor on this earth. As I've shared with you before, my father died in 2014, then my mother died suddenly in 2019. And after handling the details of my mother's funeral, and you know what the next step is in settling an estate, dealing with the house. My heart goes out this morning to those who have lost their father or their mother this week, Steve Wanner, Jeremy Vetker, and Susan Voorhees, so pray for them. Packing up 50 years of memories was overwhelming. Preparing for the sale of the house induced an ache in my soul that I had never experienced before. For the very first time in my life, I felt like a 50-year-old orphan with no anchor in this world. You know, what was it in my mind that seemingly made this world my home and tied me down to this earth? Um, that was that home. Waves of tear came and went on the 15-hour journey away from my childhood home for the last time as I drove a U-Haul back to Lafayette, Indiana. Even today, 
around the holidays, there's a hollowness in me when I realize that there is nothing ever to draw me back to my father's house, my home in Lawton, Oklahoma, ever. So whether it's the ache of a 50-year-old orphan or a newly orphaned child of the Israel-Gaza war or the pain of instability of no stable childhood home or house or just the longing of something that is stable in life, the pain, that pain right there, that ache is all reflective of us being spiritual orphans exiled from a stable house that God intended us to be with him in. With that in mind, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. That's on page 492 in the back section or the front section of the Bible and chair in front of you. We are continuing our series, a Christmas series called Light of the World. And let me set up a bit of the context here for you that helps us to understand the topic at hand just a little bit more. You know, Pastor Green and others have given you some context of Isaiah 9 in the last two sessions. Let me give you just a little bit more. God had established his people in a particular piece of real estate. Let's call it the promised land. Let's call it a home or a house for the stability of his people. There in the promised land, God would dwell with his people, and he, along with his people, were to be a stabilizing house and a force or a light for the world there in the promised land. God even promised to one individual in particular, King David, that King David's house would be the house of God, and that would last forever and be a stabilizing force in the world. However, after 700 years, God's people regularly turn to, unfortunately, other houses and homes and not God's. They delighted in other so-called gods that could not provide any stability at all. Eventually, God had to discipline and purify his own house and his own home. That is the short version of the story of Isaiah. God bringing judgment and discipline upon his own house, but at the same time, promising hope for a lasting house with also a lasting leader in the house as well. Now, God's disciplining judgment would come in the form of an invading nation. And I know the moment I talk about history, your eyes might glaze over, but hang with me for just a little bit. So God's disciplining judgment to his house would come in the form of an invading nation, eventually God destroying his own house on earth. Now, let me kind of give you something to hang your hats on here this morning. When you think about the Old Testament, there are really four major crisis points with God's people, and I'm going to describe them in terms of houses. Number one is this, God's people leaving the original house, Eden. That's number one, okay? Number two, God's people in captivity in Egypt, preparing to go to a new house that God has prepared for them. So that's all about the exodus, number two. Number three, that house didn't last terribly long. God's people beginning to be exiled from that home to again return to captivity. That's called the Assyrian crisis, Okay, just so that it's in your mind for just a second, everyone, if you will, please say Assyrian crisis. <laughs> okay? So that's number three. That's what Isaiah is about. Okay? 
Number four, God's people fully removed from the house that was their home, the promised land, and they go into captivity. That's called the Babylonian captivity. So those are the four crisis events around, the, around which the Old Testament revolves. Isaiah is about number three, the Assyrian crisis, God beginning to remove his people from the promised land. And prophesying about number four, an eventual full removal in the Babylonian captivity. In Isaiah, we are in number three. And geographically, politically, it looks like this. God raised up the nation of Assyria to discipline his people. So they're coming in from the northeast. That's the way the nations would come to invade this particular part of the land. Aram, or as we know it, Syria, um, and Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, all knew about the writing on the wall that Assyria was coming. And recognizing that the big man on campus, Assyria, is coming, king, the king of Aram, on your map, King Rezin, okay, and the king of Israel, King Pekah, are going to resist Assyria's onslaught, or they're going to at least try. And they form an alliance together and demand that the Davidic king, okay, important, Davidic king, a Davidic house, King Ahaz of the southern kingdom of Judah, the house that God had promised would stand forever, they demand that King Ahaz and Judah join them in this alliance against Assyria. They say, King Ahaz, if you don't join us and fight against Assyria, we're going to destroy you and we're going to destroy the Davidic house. And we're going to replace your house with a different house. God, through the prophet Isaiah, exhorts King Ahaz to trust himself. Because God promised that the Davidic house would stand forever. But King Ahaz did not believe and instead, can you believe this? This is what we do all the time as well. We don't turn to God. We turn to something other. And King Ahaz did not believe and instead turns to Assyria for refuge instead of God. Eventually, ruthless Assyria comes and destroys Aram, Israel, and most of Judah as well. Those things that we trust in other than God eventually destroy us. Now, in the midst of that very bleak, dark, house-destroying event, God offers this promise in your scriptures, chapter 9 in Isaiah chapter 1. But now there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, Sometime later, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and on the side of the Jordan. Um, Galilee of the Gentiles, you may not understand what's going on there, but the Assyrian army came destroying from the north. And one day, the light would come from the north. So Jesus Christ, if you don't remember where he started his ministry, the light of the world, he started it in the north in Galilee. Those people who dwell in darkness one day will see a great light, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That's the theme of our message this Christmas. Jump to verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and that's our name that we're going to deal with today, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government um, or of peace. And on the throne of David, okay, and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So in midst of the devastating situation where it would seem that the house of God's people was being destroyed to never rise again, God promises them there's going to come a child and the house will survive. This morning we're talking about this. Hope for a secure house because of the child called Eternal Father. And the name Eternal Father here implies four hope-filled actions of one who will provide an everlasting and secure house for his people. All right, now as we get into this, I know as we get into the text this morning, oh my goodness, we already have some tension in the text, okay? If you have some exposure to Christianity, you know that the Bible teaches that there is one Godhead with three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here we have a prophecy about a son who is called (laughs) Eternal Father. Is the Bible confusing the two? So I'm going to propose to you, the scriptures here are not mistaking the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I hope to show you, based upon the context of this prophecy, what the title most likely indicated about this child. So let's start right here. Okay, what does a good father do for his family? Think about that. What does a good father do for his family? Here it is. He builds a house for his family or his people. In September, several of us returned from Israel. What timing, right? Two weeks before the current war broke out. Around Israel, when we were traveling around Israel, we would see villages and houses like what you see right there. Can you see the the layered residential buildings there? You see those? Can you see those? Okay. Often we would see rebarb and beams sticking out of the ceilings of those as if the residential units were incomplete, like they were waiting for a second floor and it wasn't there. Well, the explanation that we were given is that, you know, when a father establishes a residence or he, he builds a house and then he has a son and the son would grow up and the son himself would start a family, And the son, soon to be a husband and father, would prepare a place for his bride and his family on top of the house. So the rebarb sticking out and the beam sticking out. So the incomplete dwelling place would be for the son to build upon to start his own house. Kind of echoes this, doesn't it? In my father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. That imagery is right there. So a man, soon to be a husband or a father, prepares or builds a house. And the name given to this child, this mysterious child in Isaiah chapter 9, is eternal father. How do we begin to understand that? Well, consider the context here. Consider the context of Isaiah in, in the earlier chapters 
I'm going to show you that the words sons, houses, father is all over the context. Eternal father is somehow related to the context in which this child's name is found. Let me draw your attention to repeated themes here. Now, I I pieced together several phrases from earlier chapters, so I'm not going to read you all of the verses in context. Notice the phrases. It came about in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel. When it was reported to the house of David, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramaliah. Let us go up against Judah, set up the son of Tabeel. As king, there's a new house replacing the old house, or at least that's what they thought, in the midst of it. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, the Lord will bring upon your father's house, but to the house of Israel, behold, all of this language here, I, Isaiah, and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, notice this, God who dwells on Mount Zion, and that is God dwelling in his house, the Davidic house there. So this name, Eternal Father, is in the context of houses, dynasties, fathers, and sons. So the ruling house is going back to this geographical depiction. The ruling houses of Aram and Israel were threatening the house of David, Judah there. And When that was happening earlier on, two chapters earlier, the scripture says this. When this was reported to the house of David, the hearts of the people shook as the trees of the forest. There it is. The instability of a house that will not seemingly stand. Here in the United States, we do not have anything close to permanent ruling dynasties around here. We have elected presidents and not successive dynasties, father, son, um, monarchies, or those kinds of things. We, but we do sense a bit of economic and political insecurity each time a president with different values in politics that are different than ours is elected. Okay. We sense that insecurity that something's going to change. The name Eternal Father promises hope that there would be some measure of a permanent stability in this world with a king and a father, a lasting house that would survive. And you may say, Brent, okay, I'm not so sure about your interpretation of this. Okay, well, let's consider this as well. Consider what God had promised to David earlier. I'm just going to read you the scripture and you'll notice the terminology right here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about when the king, David, lived in his house, that the king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells with his tent curtains in the tabernacle. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I'm going to make your name great. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'm going to plant them that they may live in their own place. There you have the security. Sounds like a house, doesn't it? And the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days, David, are complete, 
meaning to say it bluntly, you die. Uh, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendants after you and will come, and your descendants who come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house, if you will place it, say house. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Here is my primary point, even if you do not understand all of the ins and outs of the political geographical history. Here's the primary point. God promised to use King David to build an everlasting house or home, a secure kingdom, a secure dynasty for his people that would last forever. And I'm also going to say this. That was God's plan from the beginning of creation. From the beginning of creation, God wanted to dwell with his people in a secure house, a home. And from the stable environments, establish an anchor point where God would have his people go forth and, and uh, rule over the earth and bring blessing to the created order. Yet the first father who was to build that house or that home was Adam, and he sinned and was cast out of the house. He was cast out of the home, the anchor point, Eden. And from that point on, here's what we are. That ache, that sense that not everything is right, the instability that we feel, that pain. We are a people who innately have a sense of being homeless in this world that's supposed to be our home. Like an extreme, amped up on steroids feeling that I had when I left my childhood home for the last time, feeling like a 50-year-old orphan. No anchor, no grounding, no stability. God came to David and said, I am going to build you a house, and it's going to last forever. God's desire is to have a people who live with him in a secure house. Let me ask you a question here. It's obvious. Well, maybe not so obvious. Who is the builder of this secure house? Is it David or is it God? Who is the builder of this secure house? Who is it? Is it David or is it God? What is the answer to that, faith family? It's God. Hang on to that for just a second. Okay, hang on to that because this is going to get interesting. So the title, Eternal Father, implies one who is the progenitor of a house. He will build the home for his people. Secondly, the title Eternal Father implies one who, this is fairly astounding and hope-filled, who unites with the house of his people. Let me ask another pretty obvious question here, okay? When a human father gives birth to a child, what kind of child is it? When a human, let me say that again, if you didn't catch it. When a human father um, uh, gives his seed and a child is born, what kind of child is it? Is it a giraffe? <laughs> say no. Do I need to teach you about biology? <laughs> when a human father and a mother come together and they have a child, it's a human child. The father passes on his human DNA, the child is human. 
Folks, let's not miss the clear tension in this passage, the clear tension in this passage. For those of you who have been around for, for a long time in regard to Christianity, I know you've read this Isaiah child promises over and over, and we miss, we miss something about it. We miss the inherent and intentional tension in this passage. This passage on its surface is impossible. It has a seemingly unresolvable contradiction in it. It is meant to elicit this response, how can this be? Did you catch the contradiction? Here's the text again. So what is the tension in this text? A child will be born to us. A son will be given, and his name is Eternal Father. Can anybody tell me what the attention is in that text? <sighs> I see some head nuts. Okay. Why is this text seemingly impossible? How can one who is born a son be an eternal father of those like him? How can this be? Do you feel the tension? Say, please, I feel it. <laughs> Furthermore, let me remind you again, who is building this house that we are talking about? Who is building it? Is it David or is it God? It's God. Another question. This may be a little tricky. Is God human? But this passage says that there will be one who establishes the eternal secure house who is a human child. A child that is given a son to be born. How is it that God is building this house, but at the very same time a human child is establishing the house? How is that possible? Don't overlook this. Furthermore, this is the same child that was promised two chapters earlier, and the child there had another name. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name God with us. How is, this is the same tension, the same mystery, a human son that is called God with us. This was meant to be perplexing, and it was for all of the Old Testament people. That mystery remained for 700 years and we see evidence of that in later portion of Scripture, 700 years later, in Matthew chapter 22, in this account where the individual Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. Now, when the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Notice the question. Whose son is he? And they said to him, obviously, he's the son of David. Okay. And he said to them, well, how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he, how is the Messiah David's son? And just as perplexing as it is to us, it was to them. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him to consider another question. God is building a house for his people, but the house must be built from a human child. How is this possible? What's the answer to this that resolves this? God himself 
has to come down to unite with the house of man. That's the only way. That's the only way. If you will, please say only. That's the only way that a stable house would be enduring and secure if God comes down and unites with humanity to make a stable house. A true father, think about it, you know the biology, a true father is one who has the same stock and DNA as his children. God had to unite with humanity, and right there is the story of Christmas. Don't miss the wonder of Christmas. God would not simply and always stand at a distance from his creation, but he would unite with humanity. Emmanuel, God with us, a child to be born, that is the eternal father, the progenitor of the house that would be secure. There is no other story like this in any other so-called religion where God comes down to unite with his creation. The text is setting up the Christmas story like none other. And you say, Brent, okay, this is impossible. I understand. (laughs) This is the Christmas miracle. How could God become man? You know, I think the extent of this miracle will always be elusive to us. As I often go to, to have some deeper thinking than my own, going to C.S. Lewis gives us some insight here. He says this, we catch sight of a new key principle. The power of the higher, just insofar as it is truly a higher to come down, the power of the greater to include the less. I'm going to summarize all this in just a moment. Everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. Here's what that means. Let me put it in layman's terms. One of the tests of greatness is the ability to come down and identify and unite with that which is lesser. You know this. Um, we have a new grandbaby in our house, okay? Little three-month-old daughter, Ariel. When you have an infant that is learning to talk, talk Ariel, three months, she's not talking yet, but when they're starting to coo and uh, do that, what do we adults do in our speech to them? <laughs> We become like babies, don't we? So the adults start talking like they start cooing and doing all these baby noises as well. But the baby at that moment in time, you'll never hear the baby start quoting Shakespeare. (laughs) It's impossible. The sign of a greater is that the greater can come down to be the lesser. A PhD physicist can teach junior high algebra, but a junior high student cannot teach a doctrinal class in physics. The power of the higher, as far as it is truly higher, shows its greatness by coming down and uniting with the lessers. Everywhere the great enters the little, that is the sign of greatness. Oh, friends, here is my appeal to you. I don't know what house you are trusting in for your stability or your security, but there is no hope in the houses of mankind of this earth because we are the lesser. Only if there is a God who is greater and is building this house and has come down to us, the lesser, and uniting with us, there's our hope. So, not only does a father build a house for his children, not only is a father of the same substance of his offspring, 
a solidarity with his children, uniting with his house. But third, a father gives life to his, to his people. Another obvious fact, if you think about these things, okay, a father gives physical life to his offspring. Okay? If there's no children, there's no life. So when a child, when a father and a mother come together, they have offspring, that father and mother, the pair, now there's life. So a father gives spiritual, gives physical life. That child has been born. Somehow the term eternal father implies eternal spiritual life in the eternal father's house. Later in Isaiah, so I would, I would submit to you that Isaiah is not a series of disconnected oracles that have no relationships to one another. But if you keep reading in Isaiah, you'll eventually get to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is no longer a picture of a child, but he is a man, and he's a suffering man, suffering man that somehow dies. But in his death, something happens. He still says this. The Scripture still says of this of this mysterious individual in Isaiah 53, he will see his offspring. This individual has some kind of children. In the New Testament, we pick this phrase up in John 1. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Children, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of man. So there's something going on here, not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth that brings life. And I'm going to read to you an extended passage from Hebrews as well. Notice the fascinating, in this fascinating passage, the intermingling of children, spiritual father and brother in solidarity together. Notice this. For both he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified are from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children you who who God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power over death. So he's giving his children life. That is the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For surely he does not give help to the house of angels, but he gives house to the descendants of Abraham. He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like them. He had to unite with their house, like his brethren, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. There's the elevation of kind of a father status in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in in that which he suffered, he's also able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This unique individual spoken of here in Hebrews is both father (laughs) to children and he's fascinatingly brother to them as well. I, I was thinking about this passage last week. Last week we did a great church family night. And um, do you remember who was doing the baptisms? Do you remember last week who was doing the baptisms last week? 
Pastor Folden. And at the, at the, you know, we do these phrases, I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I baptize you my brother. He said that to his son, Sawyer. Okay? So son has become brother to Dustin. A beautiful picture. But here in this passage, this unique individual spoken of here in Hebrews is both father and brother. Father in the sense of I and the children that God has given me, as if this individual is the author and the source and the head of their life. But at the same time, one who is one, who is one with them being their brother. All of this is so mysterious, but mysteriously beautiful. Finally, security comes not only from a father who builds a house for his children, not only from a father who unites with the house that he's building, becoming one with them, not only from a father who is the author and source of their children's life, but finally a father who is, whose fatherhood never ends. He rises to be the king forever of his people, Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. And on the throne of David, the house of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. Say forevermore, if you will, please. And this is sure because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Some of us here had very good fathers, and not everyone has. Biological fathers. Imagine the best father ever. The Father of Year goes, award goes to him. Imagine always being able to go to him. I mean, there's days I still long to call my mother or my father. And, and have you seen the picture of our new grandbaby? <laughs> I long for that. Imagine always being able to go to him. Always being able to go home for the holidays and somebody's there. Always being able to ask a question or show a picture. Always having a home. What security, what stability, what assurance in this life. And for that kind of eternal security, we would need an eternal father. Unlike our earthly fathers who die. His name shall be called Eternal Father. Now, friends, let's ask ourselves this question. Who is this child of Isaiah 9? We know his name. Okay, we know his name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. But you know him by another name. Okay? And I have intentionally withheld that, withheld that name from you this morning until this point. Okay? Who is the God that became a son to build a stable house for humanity? Who is the God that united with humanity? Who is the child that can give life to cause spiritually dead children to be born again spiritually? Who is the one that rose again and lives forever to reign in his house forever? Say his name. Say his name. It's Jesus. You know the name. Well, friends, I want to fast forward now for just a moment. Okay, let's fast forward from Christmas. Easter. You know, I went through the history of the text. 
the laborious, you know, political intrigue for reason. As I mentioned in the beginning, in the context, this promise was given in the context of the house of David being judged and disciplined for failure to be faithful children. And once again, even what seemed to be the promise of God to establish a stable house for humanity in the house of David, the promise of the, the Davidic covenant, that stability seemed to be elusive because God was now judging his own house. But don't miss this. Don't miss what I'm about to say. If God himself comes in and unites with the house of David that he promised to build, but that house has been defiled by unfaithful children, and the children need to be judged and purified. So if God himself comes in and unites with the house that he promised to build, but that house is defiled, if God himself unites with a house that needs to be purified, guess what? He himself will take the ultimate discipline. He himself will take the ultimate judgment. He himself will take the ultimate destruction that that house deserved for the impurity of that house. The builder of the house, the one who unites with the house, indeed has been acted like a father should, giving his life for the house in place of his children. Oh, faith family, do you see how he loves you? Merry Christmas and happy Easter. A son will be given and his name will be called Eternal Father. This is the house that you want to be part of this Christmas. Let me appeal to you. If you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ by name as the Eternal Father and the one who will build a house for you permanently, what on earth are you waiting for? Because there's no house on earth that will ever last except the one that Jesus Christ is building. And by faith in him today, you can come to be a part of his eternal stable house. Believers, why are we so shaken when the houses that we build for ourselves relationally, financially, with possessions, and they seem to be on unstable ground. They don't just seem to be, they are. But when the stock market crashes or the political winds don't blow our ways or the relationships don't work out, we seem to get so devastated. The houses that we want to build for ourselves in those ways, they're unstable. Remember the house that your Savior is building for you. You know, sentimentally, each Christmas, I think about my earthly father's house and home. I mean, I'm here. I'm not traveling back home. I'm not going home for the holidays in, in the sense that I used to know. Ultimately, that father's, my father's house, that was not my anchor. In fact, my earthly father actually, because he's a believer, is my brother. And we're part of another house. It's not the house at 4230 Avondale Lane in Lawton, Oklahoma. And Harry Oakwin, my biological father, is not my eternal father. And those things, Harry Oakwin and that house, was not my stability. 
Harry Oakwin and me share in the eternal Father, the author and the head of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And we are part of his house. This is the last sermon of this year for me, my last time with you for this year. And let's begin the way that we, let's end the way we began. We began this year with 1 Peter. Let me read to you from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, that's a reference to the Davidic house, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and all who believes in him will not be disappointed. Say with me, I will not be disappointed. Say that. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you and we thank you for this beautiful redemptive plan. And we, de- we indeed, as we sang this morning, praise your name. We praise your name for the child, the son that was to be given, and his name is Eternal Father, who builds his children a house, who has united with it, who infuses it with spiritual life, and will be our Father forever. Let us rest securely in that hope and promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.